Hey guys, what's going on? This is David Avalon with my co-host Robert Drysdale for another episode of Breaking the Guard. In today's episode, we start off talking about our main topic, which is the IBJJF, which is the world's biggest Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation, has just allowed heel hooks in particular to be available to brown and black belt competitors in no-gi tournaments. So uh, this does a lot of interesting things, which me and Robert talk about, including one, is this going to help speed up innovation and which side's going to go first? The defense going to get better or is offense going to get better? Are we going to get more people competing now, like the submission-only guys and who are, are heavy on the leg lock game that were kind of banning IBJJF because they didn't allow those heel hooks? And a, a bunch more. We also talk about uh, how high-level competitors are releasing instructional DVDs and courses, which is a unique phenomenon in the sporting world. You don't see football or basketball players releasing DVDs, teaching you their best moves, or even boxers, for that matter. So uh, we explore that topic a bit and how that's beneficial to the competitors, uh, you know, which is something I had to deal with myself when I released my own course. And then finally, we, we uh, meander around a little bit. We talk about the woes of being a big guy, sparring little people, and <laughs> why video games used to be better than they are now. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Go ahead and stay tuned to hear it. Before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out to one of our sponsors, which is Opening the Closed Guard. So... Robert has been working on his documentary for quite some time now, I think since even before we started this podcast, but he's on the, the threshold of finishing the video. However, he has completed the book, which is the accompanying book called Opening the Closed Guard. You can locate it at closedguardfilm.com. It's also on Amazon if you look up Closed Guard, and it'll be the first one that pops up. And this is a very in-depth book. Uh, Robert uh, says even more so than the video. So it's going to give you the true origins of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is not what we've been told historically. I've always heard that Elio Gracie created Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And, uh, and then you hear Count Coma and uh, a bunch of other characters. And surprisingly... They they all had a role, but they weren't the originators. And uh, understanding the history and the origins of the sport is very interesting. And it's kind of revealing in today's era, particularly with how crazy politics and history can be interpreted. So uh, I would tell you, go ahead, take a read. It's You can go at closedguardfilm.com to check out the book. Or you can just go on Amazon, search for Closed Guard, and it'll be there as well. Hey guys, what's going on? I'm David Avalon here with my co-host Robert Drysdale, back for another episode of Breaking the Guard. First of all, I have to thank Robert <laughs> once again. <laughs> so, in case you guys are wondering what Breaking the Guard is really about, <laughs> it's nothing to do with a podcast. It's just Dave's way of getting me to come over and help help move him move heavy guard. stuff. <laughs> exactly. That, that 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 piano was costing me for the record. Like that that one time. Holy shit. Yeah. No, all good fun though. Um, Dave, what's new, man? 
Well, uh, finished the first in-home camp here in Vegas last week. Yep. Which, that was a lot of fun. Uh, we had a smaller group because we had a lot of people cancel in the last minute. Of course. COVID and yeah. some people just couldn't come because travel restrictions. Yeah. So, but it worked out really nice. You know, we had a, a good group of guys. And some people ask me, what's the average age of the camps? <laughs> I said, this one, old. <laughs> yeah. It was all people of 50 plus. It's, it was at, uh, 52, 53, 57. It was a, and, and we have one younger guy, Joey, coming yeah. in, obviously, he was like 21. He was the baby of the group. He messed up the average. <laughs> he messed Basically. up the average. Yeah. But, yeah. but you know what? I, it's really, uh, I was really happy to see that is because these guys, even though when I was a kid, you said you're 50, you're like, oh, you're old. Yeah. Right? And these guys were moving great, man. Yeah. They're still moving good. I think 50-year-olds yeah. are healthier than they've ever been before. You know, yeah. surgery, diet, everything has improved, right? Medicine has improved, so life, quality of life improves with it. I think grappling, though, like jiu-jitsu, the jiu-jitsu world in general is very unusual um, in that, you know, there's more longevity to it. Like, you don't see what's the average age in any wrestling room. And my guess would be the average age is, what, 19 maybe? For wrestlers, for yeah, sure. Yeah, like it's something like that. Like you're going to start in high school and by the time you're out of college or, you know, there's some clubs out there with older men do practice, but they're exceptions. They're very rare. Yeah. I think the average age in a jiu-jitsu room is going to be 30, 35 maybe. Yeah. I don't know. 30 plus, I think. 30 plus, might, I think for sure. Yeah, yeah. and I, th- I think one of the reasons is there's less impact. Like you couldn't spar Muay Thai live all the time. You kill yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Wrestling, judo, they're all rough on the body because of impact, right? Grappling has less impact, so I think there's that's I mean there's still injuries. I'm wrong, but I think the longevity is a little higher. The more welcoming to people, yeah, in that age bracket. And you can also, it's a lot more tailor made, right? Like, yeah. if you want to start from your feet, you can. If you want to yeah. start from your back, you can. If you want to do like a slower roll, you know, true, it's possible. I can't slowly suplex you, right? Like, yes, no, you can't. No, <laughs> you're going or you're it's not. It's so true. Yeah, it's, I never thought about it that way, but you're right. Like you can't. You can't be a good striker or a good wrestler without being explosive. Yeah. You can't do it in slow motion. Like, it's just, I mean, unless you're like Kale Sanderson, you might be able to wrestle in slow motion to take people down. But for the most part, it's not very common. Yeah. In jiu-jitsu, you can be really slow and still be really good. Yeah, exactly. You uh, can set up traps and you can even just with good grips control people. Pressure. And yeah. walk into a submission, yeah. like baby step them in, yeah. you know. You can't really do that in wrestling or, or striking. Like you said, you can't slow them <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we had a yeah. guy, I always talk about this guy, Locolo in my gym. He's 350. He can't really spar with guys who are lightweights because his jab is like someone else's. Yeah. You can't. Right, you know. You know, when I was spar, you know, I'm not like the heaviest guy, but I'm not light either. And I'd spar with smaller people. I always felt at a disadvantage. I was like, Rob, you're heavier. I was like, yeah, but heavy is only an advantage if I can actually throw hard. Yeah. If I'm holding my punches back, I'm slow now, and you're faster than me. Yeah. So sparring with smaller guys was actually, I was at a disadvantage. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because their advantage is speed, and they're allowed to move as fast as they want. Yeah. That's never bad. Yeah. But if I hit them as hard as I can, I'm an asshole. Yeah. So it's, it, it was always difficult to find that, that balance in striking. Yeah, I've felt that many times. Because for some reason I'm not I'm not a bigger guy, especially compared to yeah. you. But like in Miami, where I was training at, they were all like 140s and under. Oh, so you a lot can't. Of times, yeah. So a lot of times I was sparring. I'm fighting a guy that's 120 or whatnot. And like you said, you're holding back. 
And then they're going, but they're not. But they're going full blast because they yeah. all these big guys are knock my head off. I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, it's like so true. Eating calf kicks and stuff. No, and they're Jesus and they're Christ. yeah, they're going to town, and you're like, you know, fifty percent. It sucks. And then if you go balls to the wall, of course, then you're a jerk. Yeah, you're a jerk. Yeah, um, man. What else, Dave? Um, I'm talking about we haven't talked in a while. Oh, but you, the big news that you had brought up earlier was that the IBJJF oh, yes. is now yeah. allowing heel hooks and reaping. I am so happy about that. Yeah. I think that was the greatest decision they have ever made in a long time because you and, can't and, limit the arsenal, man. You can't close it. And that's official now, right? It's, it's official. Yeah. Um, well, they, I mean, we, they've been talking about it for quite some time, and I've participated in a couple of these meetings of, like, discussing. And it was unanimous. Like, they ask all the coaches, because normally when they make decisions like this, they're not, they're actually pretty open to debate. They're more open than people think they are. You just got to be reasonable when you approach them. Don't approach them with anger. It's like, hey, man, why don't you guys do this? Yeah. And present your arguments in an intelligent way and don't listen. So basically, they approached like, some of the head coaches in the sport. And it was like 99% of them were in favor. The only guy who was against it was Comprito. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to throw him under the bus. <laughs> I love him. But I guess, like, dude, like, this is, this, it's because he comes, he's more of, I think he's watching out for, I mean, the injury thing is a scary thought. Like, I, sure. I get that because it's a short lever. And it's not like you pop in your arm. You pop your knee. It's a different kind of injury. Like you yeah. popped your elbow before. It's nothing. You're back on the mats in two, week, in two weeks. Like it's not that big of a deal. Pop your knee on a heel hook or a toe hold. The other thing is that the toe hold is remarkably similar to the heel oh, hook. It's I the think same. It's worse. Yeah, it's the same lever. It's a, it's a rotational motion on the knee and the ankle. So it's a spiral, right? Like, I always still find it strange that they allow the toe hold, but not the heel hold. I, I never understood that either because yeah. I've seen devastating toe hold injuries. Like, yeah. one of my students, <laughs> he, he's the one who got toe holds taken out of Nagas, which is Enrico Coco. Yeah. Back when he was a teenager, it was like his first Naga, I think. It was in Orlando. Blew the guy's knee. Uh, he was like 12 years old. He was a kid. But they allowed toe yeah. holds back then. And he got the kid a toe hold, and the kid was wearing wrestling shoes, which didn't help him. And he whack, and the foot just pointed the wrong way. They're like, ooh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. yeah, it's nasty. Yeah, so like, I to me, when I see toe holes, I always think of that. I'm like, man, you get a lot more leverage on a toe hole. If, yeah, you, if you're on top of it, man, you can really rip. And yeah. like, the injury argument is like a good argument, but there has been uh, an educational process, and this is large. I think the submission only movement and the professional events are largely responsible for this. There has been an educational process in the community. Uh, and where people learn how to tap before it hurts. It's not like a choke. You can hold it out an extra second sometimes, you yeah. know, like, you know, like other, an arm bar, you have plenty of time to make up your mind before you tap, right? It's a long lever. A heel hook, you don't have a lot. It's like a wrist lock. Yeah. You have to uh, tap. You verbally tap normally. And I think there's been an educational uh, uh, um, process that's been going on the last like five years, right? Since they've been very popular. And people, they're seeing that the injury ratio is not that high as long as you have educated competitors. Because, yeah. like, when was the last time you saw? I mean, it does happen, like the Vinny with, like, um, Craig thing. But Vinny's being incredibly stubborn. He could have tapped before. Oh, oh I didn't feel it. Like, you yeah. can't tell me you felt no pressure on that foot, man. You felt something, yeah. right? You just decided to hold back. And you know what? Let's see. I've never tapped before. I'm not going to tap now, sort of thing. Right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think, it's just, I think that if we educate people and we teach them how to tap, I'm in favor of the heel hooks being legal in the gi. I don't see why not. Uh, yes, just to be clear for people to know, this is only no gi, and it's only I think was it black belt, brown and black, brown adult. and black, right? adult, not so masters. Yeah, yeah, we don't have white belts throwing heel hooks, so which I think is a good first step. I, I, I think, think it's so not you know baby steps, right? No, I mean even I think down the road, I'm, when I mean in my school, yeah, we do teach 
heel hooks to white belts, but there's a lot of education, yeah. education, a lot of warning, and you know, I think competition-wise, it's not needed. There's a lot to work on. You know what I mean? And it, it, you know, because if you're competing, maybe that's going to be your first competition as a white belt or as a blue belt. Yeah. And you might have an ego thing, and the heel hook doesn't really care about your ego. No, no. <laughs> it's gonna destroy it. Yeah. So I, I, I can l let it slide, like let it go until brown belt. Or, you know, where at that point you should know. If you don't, shame you on sh you. You shouldn't be a black belt. Like you should understand. Yeah. You know, you have a. At least here's the, the the other advantage. I mean, some people are gonna like look at this like, oh, I'm worried about my knees now in competition. You know, we have to look at longevity of the sport, like the arsenal, like the the the. The plethora of moves has to stay open. The cannon has to stay open, right? Once you close it, you know, and I've made this case, and I, I don't, wrote this, I don't know if you got onto the book, but I talk about this in the book. That was Judo's mistake. They limit the cannon. And when they do that, all they're doing is creating a space for something else to exist. That's all you're doing, right? Yeah. So you have to keep the cannon as broad as possible, right, in order to keep the martial art very eclectic, very diverse, and, and, and willing to absorb new techniques, which Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is surprisingly willing to do. Like, if you look at... Like how many wrestling moves translate to BJJ? All of them, except yeah. the suplex. It's the only, and you can't suplex. You can suplex on the side, you can't on the neck. That's the only one that's illegal. Yeah. But how many BJJ moves don't translate into wrestling, for example? So like the canon is very broad. It's just that we have to make sure that it stays that way and we don't close it. Yeah, no, I agree. And especially if you see the recent trend in you know world-class competitions, it's leg lock, leg lock, yeah. leg lock, leg lock. So if we're going to leave that out in... The biggest, I guess, amateur venue possible. That's yeah. a big disservice, right? Yeah. Because now you're making a big difference between the leagues, and I'm yeah. sure IBJF doesn't want to be seen as, oh, that's like, yeah, that's not the real thing. The real thing is, you know, the submission only or ADCC or whatever. Yeah. So I think by adding that in, they bring themselves up to par now. Where okay, now we're we're all playing with the same moves. Yeah, you know. So I, I think that's a good move. And and it actually ke it keeps the the community broad and big. What I, what happens is once again not to get too nerdy on history here, but that's what happened in Brazil. They could no longer agree on the rule set. And once that happens, guess what? You have a split. That's essentially that's how splits occur. Like we cannot agree on how we practice. So long as there's agreement, the sport remains unified. It's I think it's it's better for everyone because. You know, we, we want it to be practiced by more people. If you believe that it is healthy lifestyle, if you believe it's good for you, you know, you want more people to practice. The more organized it is, the bigger it gets, the more people practicing, you know, like we, I mean, I think jiu-jitsu is on its way to become the most practiced martial art in the world. Like, I hope that happens. I don't think it is yet. Some people think it is. I'm not sure. I think it still might be judo. But, you know, I think we're on our way. It's definitely, well, at least from the States, it's the most popular yeah. on its own you know and uh i think by mma in itself obviously is the most publicized and Correct. public face and a lot of people correlate mma to jiu-jitsu now so you know that's obviously been a big win for the jiu-jitsu community jiu-jitsu has yeah. benefited from mma more than any other martial art for sure like, i think wrestling did too i think there's been an increase I, I, yeah. I don't know but my guess is that there are more kids wrestling now than before the ufc that'd be my guess i i would I would agree in certain senses. I'm not sure, just not because from a public perception, but because of laws like Title IX or whatnot really destroyed wrestling programs. Okay. But I'm thinking back like a decade ago. I'm not sure how that's happening yeah. now. But 
definitely there's a lot more respect given to wrestling. Yeah. I know back in the day, people were, you know, wrestling, oh, you're just some weird dudes wrestling with yeah, little wheelchairs. Yeah, you know? exactly. Now people look at wrestlers, oh, that guy could hurt he me. Could you fight. Know? No, and they weren't yeah. fighters before. Yeah, they were, they, were exactly. not, they were not considered fighters or martial artists, which they are. But we associate the term martial art with something Asian, right? Like right. everything that is Western is not. Um, you know one reason why that is, and this is my suspicion, don't quote me on it, is that, you know, the, the, the West, right, Europe, the Americas, they became, um, their feudal age ended a long time ago. So we went through this, they, they, went, they, went, they acquired firearms much, much before um, Japan did. So Japan, by holding off, their feudal age was extended until the 1800s. So that martial culture was very, very present in Japan, where these martial arts existed in Europe. Like, there, are, there was grappling in Europe before, but once you invented firearms, why are soldiers going to keep practicing? It's one of those things, well, we'll just pick up a gun. It makes yeah. a lot more sense, right? Whereas Japan, because their feudal age was extended into the 1800s, I think they kept the practice of the martial culture alive in a way that the West didn't. And wrestling survived, but, I mean... That, that's it. But like wrestling survived, and it, you know, I think wrestling is the only exception I can't think of. But like these martial arts existed in Western countries. They, it's not like only Japan had martial arts, you know. But I think it might have to do with the fact that Japan wasn't, you know, open to the world until late in the eighteen hundreds. No, it makes a lot of sense, and I think, well, there's a lot of skills required with handling firearms and whatnot. But I think the level of discipline and training the martial arts is probably very different especially oh, especially since firearms were relatively new so the level of proficiency yeah. would have probably been way below and yeah. the tools itself it's very different than it is now because yeah. you have guys who are like john wicks or whatnot that there's all sorts of skills that you can have with firearms that can make it a martial art in itself just handling it you know? yeah but i think back then when you're dealing with a, a musket <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it would be far more efficient. Like I would not be scared of a guy with a musket. Like I'm sorry. Like, I mean, you have to be far away. No way far away, he can't hit me because like, the accuracy on those things are horrible. You know? Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy seeing how yeah. like if you see people loading it and stuff, yeah. it's, it's wild. But uh, yeah, that's interesting about Japan though being because yeah, it, it's unusual. Their yeah. their their feudal age was extended longer than any other country in the world. You know, so maybe that played a role because a feudal mentality is a very martial mentality. Feudal lords fighting for, you know, the constant conflict. It's the same thing in Europe. It was not so different. Not the same, but different. But it, they were constantly in state of warfare, you know, because, you know, a bunch of little small kingdoms battling, in the case of Japan, you know, lords. But I think that probably created a, a, a martial culture that lived well into the 18th century, 19th century, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, going back to the heel hook thing, switching gears a little bit, going back to our original topic, I think that this is, I wonder how the jiu-jitsu world is going to react to it if a lot of the people that were boycotting IBJJF are going to continue to do that. That's the only question. If they're going to be a holdout and they're going to be like, I am not, we're going to stick to this right here and we're not going to be absorbed. Or, because that's what the Gracies did. Like, we're not changing, right? If it's going to be one of those things or is it going to be, yeah, it just makes a lot more sense to absorb, be absorbed, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, say what you want about IBJJF, but they are at the forefront of the growth of jiu-jitsu around the world. There's no organization in the grappling world. Like, ADCC doesn't come close, in my opinion, as far as promoting the sport, even though the technical level is higher than IBJJF, in my opinion, right? But as far as promotion of the sport, I think for a sport to grow, for wrestling, wrestling needs a fila. Um, you know, judo needed its Kotokan. 
Like jujitsu needs its IBJJF. And again, even with my disagreements with them, which are many, I think that was a very positive step in, in that direction. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the IBJJF schedule of events, it's just slam-packed. Oh, like two, sometimes like three a weekend. Yeah, and they're all over the world. Over you know, the world. So they're, it's happening a lot. So like you said, they're like, uh, for, like you said, like it or not, they are the... The face of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. yeah. You know, so without them there, you would lose a lot of players. I and mean, you would lose that worldwide presence for sure. And, and the other thing is like competition is what creates us, makes a sport. Competition is super important, man. Like people don't realize how important competing is. Even if most people don't compete, what competition does is that it creates this conflict between rivals, right? You have this this friction, like I want to beat you, you want to beat me, and it's like an arms race, right? What does that do to the technical level of the sport? Yeah, it raises, it, if there's no competition, what happens? What's the incentive to really, that's what happens to a lot of martial arts that aren't competitive, they become so theoretical, there's no validity to actual, you know, you can't implement that in real life. And I think that by doing this, like by having tournaments in Africa, by having tournaments in, 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 in Asia, by having tournaments all over the Americas, what you do is you create these pockets of of arms race, like all these arm races going on in all these different countries, and that right there elevates the level, and it makes it engaging too. Like when you're in competition mode, man, it's fun. Yeah. Like being in that world, like am I gonna fight next weekend? Am I gonna beat that guy? You're super nervous. The guy beat you last tournament, you gotta outsmart him this tournament. I think that keeps so many competitors, so many practitioners motivated to stay in the gym. I think what you said about the technical level is very true. I, myself and my brother, most of our learning early on was done in competition because we didn't have a sensei or, or, or a master teaching us. It was yeah. me and him. So whenever we competed, we filmed it. And yeah. we were using VHS tape, you know, mm -hmm. mini cam, whatever. And then we would film it. After the match, we'd watch it. And we would look at the things we did right and then what our opponents were doing to us. If it was working, okay, how do we integrate that into yeah. our game? And now... With the advent of the internet, that makes it so much more powerful. Because yeah. if you think back in the day, even in our time, I wouldn't know what would happen in the Australian trials, right? They would say, "Oh, some you know whoever won, that would be it." Yeah. Now we get to see how they won. How and yeah. pause it and you know, yeah, watch and look, it again. Go, oh crap, man! That guy pulled off some slick stuff. Yeah. You know. Uh, so I think that has probably and it's happening to every industry i would imagine raising the level up significantly because we could learn from all across the world in an instant you know, i i think that's because now i have people you got someone like joey and yeah kids are an animal he's 21 years old he's super technical <laughs> he's so rolling and he's so guys. strong too wow. he's just taking everybody's back <laughs> no like crazy and he's, he's stupid strong for he's like he's super skinny like oh i can bend this guy in half no he's strong <laughs> holy shit yeah so like but that's crazy. That at twenty one, you know, I was nowhere near that level. You know. What I mean? Oh no, no one yeah. was. Yeah. At twenty one, I was just like wrestler smash. And, and and it's funny because you know people don't always appreciate that because I agree. Like I watch, you know, tape. I, I someone sent me a video of me competing as a brown belt the other day. He, competing against him, he had the video yeah. and he posted it. I reposted. Like, oh man, because I have zero footage of me competing. I didn't film anything, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look online, you'll find like MMA, a little bit of jujitsu, but like. Blue, purple, brown, nothing. And I'm like, oh, man, it's not too bad. You know, it's okay, pretty good. But I'm like comparing the brown belts today. I'm like, nah, I don't think I would have won. Yeah. You know, like it's just, but it's not, it's not a discredit to me 
or a credit to the younger generations. It is a it is a testament of the growth of the art. Like you have yeah. to remember this. Like people, I think it was um, I think we talked about this in like the Keenan podcast. Like we said, like yeah, Hickson wouldn't win a purple belt tournament today. I'm like, I agree. Yeah, I don't think he would. But that's not an insult to Hickson, and neither is it a compliment to Keenan's purple belt. Right. It is a compliment to jujitsu and its growth. You know, that's normal. You're going to put a swimmer from the 1980s in a swimming pool with Michael Phelps, and you think, like, <laughs> who are we kidding here? Of course he's going to lose, you yeah. know? But that's good. That's how it, the sport should be evolved. You want the sport to be fossilized in the 1980s, and this is what we have, and it's not going to get better than this? Like, we peaked in the 1980s? Yeah, are you pathetic. kidding me? Yeah. Is that what you want? You want the sport? Okay, we peaked in the 1980s, and you think that's good for the sport? Yeah. Come on. You know, that's a, that was the beginning of our history, man. Like, I think... I, and I write this in the book. Like our, the, the history of jiu-jitsu really begins in 94. Before that, they were doing judo. They don't like it, but it's true. It was just modified. Like jiu-jitsu, as we know, it got sophisticated after IBJJF. That's when competition raised the bar. Dude, you can watch footage of these guys going in the 1980s. What were they doing? They were good grapplers. Good, but that was basic. It was, they were doing basic judo. And even if you look at early UFCs, when we're talking about 93 yeah. and up, that's super basic stuff. Oh, too. very basic. Like I go, I've had a time. I've fantasized about this more times than I can count. <laughs> In the time machine, if I could go back to '93 with my skills, I would have won the UFC so many times. <laughs> oh, it, it would be no contest. I'd be like, I'd like beat everyone. <laughs> just like Hoist was tearing people up. I mean, Hoist's jiu-jitsu game was super basic, but yeah. it was just all that. It was needed. way better yeah. than every what everyone else yeah. was doing. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah. I didn't learn like a omoplata until like 2000 something. Yeah, like the first jujitsu I learned was also super basic. Oh. It was like arm bar. I mean, I learned heel hooks, neck cranks, and all the the dirty stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like I learned all the curse words. Yeah, and that. Yeah, that's like when you learn a new language. You always learn bad words, and then you learn like you know nouns. Yeah, and, I was like learning you know, half verbs. crucifixes and all these crazy. That's why a lot of people thought, "Oh, you're a catch wrestling guy." I'm like, no, I mean, I just, I just but, learned these. But you stuff. you are an example. There's a lot of people like you. I think. You and your brother, the difference is you guys did really well in competition, whereas that first generation of practitioners in the U.S., they were learning from VHS tapes as well. Mm -hmm. Like, there were so I mean, how many times have I heard that story of the guy who just gets in a, buy some mats in his garage with his buddies, they're watching VHS tapes, and next thing you know, that guy is promoted to blue, and then Brazilian comes visit two years later, gives him a purple belt, and those were like the very first generation of American practitioners. There were... They were winging it if they were borrowing from wrestling, maybe or judo or catch wrestling. But for the most part, a sport when it's new anywhere, people are kind of winging it. You are your own coach, yeah. and that was the same case in Brazil. When you know when 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 Carlos and those guys were were creating what we now call Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and they were winging it a lot. It's not like they had a vast experience with anyone really. A lot of it was just like, what's that book over there? Oh, that looks like a good move. Add it to the the curriculum, right? What, what was that move from Luta Livre over there? Oh, that that was really good. That works. Even capoeira, they're borrowing, right? Yeah. And I think we still do that. It's just that jiu-jitsu has gone so big now. You don't have to vote fish for moves in other martial arts. You can just watch flow grappling and, you know, pause, rewind, and watch again what those blue belts are doing. It's like, I mean, there's tons of innovation going on at the blue belt level, you know? So imagine the black. So I think it's a testament of the growth of the sport. Like, I, I, people should not give themselves too much credit. Younger generations should not give themselves too much credit because they didn't do much. They got it all digested. You know, previous generations do the hard work. You got to give the previous generations their credit for laying the groundwork, right? And I think that's where this conversation gets a little lost. You know, new jujitsu is bad, old school is useless, and it's. I think they're. You know, it's it, it's the same thing. It's just one trajectory. You can't have one without the other one. You man. can't have one without the other. Exactly. I'll be curious to see how the first 
few tournaments go once they start doing no gi heel hooks because my what i'm going to picture is that right now since we only see them in sub only yeah. and you know, acc there's not as high as a frequency of this competition so like we were talking about there's not as much time for people to innovate or to like uh, explore these positions yeah. in competition but once we start doing it ibgf there's going to be a lot more people doing it just because the tournaments are bigger and yeah. they're more varied i mean there there's more of them going yeah. on so I wonder if the defense level is going to rise up a oh, 100%, lot, percent, yeah. Or if the offense is going to go up. Like I'm, I'm wondering, like, because some people are like, oh, is the leg lock game going to is here to stay, or is it going to change? It's. I think it's never going to go away. Yeah. But you remember when Birimbolo started, yeah. maybe ten years ago, whatever. You know, it was like a fad, and everyone. This is like the. And then for and then after the minute there, we're like, no one could stop Rafael Mendes' Birimbolo. And then Augusto Mendes came in, like, wait a second. This is how you do it. And he stopped them every single time. Shut them down every single time. Beats them twice. Right? And I think that that's... Um, and just like these things come and go. I was a member of the minute there where people were like... I remember when people first started playing Spider Guard. Like it was like... Whew, I knew three Spider Guard sweeps. I'm like, man, I know real jiu-jitsu, man. My jiu-jitsu is like, you know, three sweeps. Yeah. But it was, it was something that was revolution at the time because no one was... You know, people weren't using it efficiently. Heel hooks fall into that category. There's gonna be they're gonna be neutralized. They're not gonna go away, just like a rear naked choke never went away. People know not to give the back, but you, people still get caught. Yeah. But it's not gonna be a surprise, surprise. I have no idea what's going on. I think one reason why Lachlan, this is a compliment to someone like Lachlan, for example, is that you know he was doing something that a lot of his opponents at ACC were not doing. He he had raised the bar in that particular fight in a way, you know, that Patrick Gaudio wasn't or Melhem Ali wasn't because you could see their calm. <laughs> I mean, Lachlan, I know what he's thinking. Like, you guys should be panicking right now. Like, get yeah, the hell yeah. out of here. You can see they're almost, like, relaxed because their knee is free. Yeah. But they didn't expect as Lachlan could bring that knee back into that, that you know, that knee, behind that knee line. Because he had raised the bar there so much in that fight. But you think that's going to happen next at ECC? I seriously doubt it. Because everyone's got their eyes where watching what he's doing. His, everyone in his division and in the open now, too, we watch, okay, what is this guy doing? They're going to study it. Are they going to make the same mistakes? I can still see people getting caught. Is it going to happen with the same frequency as it did last ADCC? I highly doubt that because the tendency is for the, the, the defense to catch up to the offense, right? And then it, it's an arms race, and it never really ends. But I think that it's, it's going to be, it's going to be like Barry and Bowles never went away, but they're not as unstoppable as they were, they were for a minute there. Yeah, and, you know, now you brought up someone like Lachlan, it is interesting now that you have the active competitors who are releasing instructionals on yeah. the stuff that they're doing. Because a part of me has to think like, man, that's kind of like giving away your secrets in a sense. Yeah. I know when I struggled with that a little bit, like I could have released a Kimura Trap system in 2009. And I didn't because I wanted to... Use it. I wanted to use it in 2011. That didn't work out well for me. And then I said, fuck it. I mean, just get it out there <laughs> it turned out better because yeah. there was more people on the internet so it made the launch better because 2009 still it wasn't as big you know as yeah. far as like mma people on the internet but nowadays um, man like you're gonna have everybody watching your stuff but from what i can tell that everybody's showing you know a lot of the cutting edge stuff can, you know? it's it's got to be a conundrum for him because you go i can keep this to myself and slow down the rate on which these people will pick up because like now you have to go through the wars that you went through in the gym yeah. to get to that level because they will get to that level yeah. and there's no doubt they're going to get to that level the question is how long is it going to take 
Uh, and not only that, they're watching you do it and they can pause and watch, which is not the same as an instructional where you're giving away all the details. Yeah. But you'll still pick up a lot from watching. Like sure. I, I watched that of him doing it to, because it's essentially the same move he does to all three of them at ADCC. Yeah. And it's like, I have a good idea of what he's doing, right? And I've even been able to pull it off in the gym myself. I know, I haven't watched his instruction, I haven't asked him, but I know if I sat down with him and I said, hey, man, what are you doing here? I know he's going to drop like four or five jewels on me. He's like, oh, okay, I had no idea. Oh, okay, I got it. Oh, that's what you're doing. Okay, got it. So what you do when you introduce an instructional and you give away the true gems, what happens is you're just speeding the process on which a competition is going to be learning. So you're making that a lot, you know, you're, you're, you're shortening the period they would normally take to absorb that move. But at the same time, how much money has it made from it? Yeah. You know, so, and not only that, if you don't release a DVD, someone else will. For sure. So one of your students is going to say F you one of those days and they're just going to take all your shit. And I'm not <laughs> going to mention names, but we know that has happened many times in the jiu-jitsu community where someone takes credit for someone else's uh, uh, development, right? And, um, yeah, money talks, man. At the end of the day, you know, it's... The way uh, I see it is one you have to make your living when you can like you said and nowadays especially like the opportunities are are pretty vast as far as there's a much bigger scale now on the internet uh for like online especially the martial arts world now i remember before the martial arts world online was like sure dog Jiu-Jitsu gear and mixedmartialarts.com. Oh man, I can take it further back. Remember NHB? NHB gear. Yeah. NHB gear. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was that's way before SureDog. That's yeah. like yeah, yeah SureDog's was way later. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. NHB gear. There was another one I used to go way back. Ninety-nine, a forum I used to go on. Was it NHB gear? There were others. There's like two of them. And NHB gear was the yeah. big. It was one of the the first one. And mixedmartialarts.com, I think. Yeah. Or MMA I, TV. Or, I think I missed that. I oh, that one is, is a big one, too. Those were the two big ones at the time. And then SureDog was coming up at the, around the same time. But I remember those three forums were like the presence of online. Yeah. That's where everybody was talking. And that's when bulletin boards were popular because social media wasn't invented yet. So if you wanted to chat with people, you were going there and you're putting your post and then you're waiting for someone to respond. Like, yeah. You know, so that was a thing. They were engaging. Like, it was like they a were. trap. Yeah, you get stuck in, sucked into those. They, they were like, well, That was a social media of the time. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, Fuck, I feel old. Yeah, it's yeah. like the predecessor of social media with yeah. bulletin boards. Yeah. You know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, now, those things are non-existent, pretty much. Yeah. Everything's social media, but at the same time, you could see stuff everywhere. So, I think if you're a martial artist competing, you might as well sell yourself because like you said... People are going to see it anyways now because you have flow grappling yeah. and you have, uh, you know, UFC fight pass. Yeah. Your stuff's being shown and people are going to pick it apart, you know, if you're competing. So, yeah, in this day and age, it, it makes more sense just to let the cat out of the bag yourself. Monetize I don't think it, you can I mean? stop monetizing. And, yeah. and like I said, if he doesn't do it, he knows perfectly well someone else will. And not only that, like, I think it's kind of point. I mean... It, it, there's something intelligent, you know, in not having your opponents learn from you. But there's also something very noble about giving it away to your opponents. Because you're improving on the sport, A. And I don't want shitty opponents. Why would you want shitty opponents? Yeah. You want to win easy? Yeah. I mean, what, what does that easy victory do for you? Like, for your spirit? Like, what does it do? Do you make you feel good? I don't, I don't value my easy wins. Yeah. I mean, if I name the people, like, if I can give you, like, 10 names that I've beaten in my life, the ones that come to mind are always the good ones. Yeah. I don't remember that guy that I tapped in 15 seconds and never saw him again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so in a way, like, you know, it's, you're doing yourself a favor when you improve on your opponent. 
and you're servicing the sport as a whole. Yeah. You know, and I, ultimately, you're going to serve yourself in the sense that, as you said, if I had like this killer leg lock game that nobody knew about, and we're like in the Stone Ages, nobody has cameras or anything like that. I could just destroy everybody with leg locks. Yeah. And what's that going to do to me? My game's going to stale. Your ego will feel great. You're going to feel like really. Yeah, like, my, my you're e- feel good. Yeah, my that. ego will be through the roof. Yeah. But then my skill set will just diminish because I won't need to get better. Right. Like I could just. It'll be like a man with a gun in, in, in the Stone Ages. Yeah. I'll be the alpha man. I'm like, all right. I've fantasized about that too. I've dreamed about that more times. It would be amazing. I'd be the king of the world. <laughs> but you wouldn't really get any better. I mean, you no. would you would just... You'd be a crappy hunter, too. Yeah, because you know? you're just solely rely on that one weapon. It's like when hunters give themselves way too much credit for killing a deer. Like, they with, like, like the rifles we have now. It's like, all right, I mean, that's cool and everything. And I, I'm not against it. I'd probably give it a go one day. But, man, imagine in the Stone Age. You had to do it with a spear or a bow and arrow. How much harder that would be? How much closer you have to get to the animal? Well, they, well, you Man, that's like, like some legit skill right there. You guys like Joe Rogan, bow and arrow hunting elk, which is... That's badass. That's pretty badass. you got to get close. you got to get really close, and there's a chance they can charge you and stuff. And yeah. yeah, you got to have some risk, though, man. Like you can't, no, no, for yeah. sure. Like, no, like, I, it, I, it, I, that's, that's where the merit comes in. Is it's, it's, it's proportion to the risk. You yeah, know? it's an adventure for them. Yeah. So I don't know if I would want to. I definitely want to hunt. I never have. I want to. I think it's. I'm not. I'm not one of those that goes like, oh, I'll never kill. I'm like, no, man. I think it's. It's not something I do just for. I mean, I would obviously want to eat the animal afterwards, not just. Hundred you know, yeah. percent. That's the main motive. Yeah. That's, I mean, honestly, man, <laughs> I think I'd be doing it more because I can buy meat. I know there's there's got to be a merit into killing it yourself that I don't get when I buy it at Walmart. But it's not the meat itself. It's I think it's the adventure of doing something that was part of our existence for 99.9% of our existence. That's how we got by. And all of a sudden, farming just kind of blew that out of the water. You know, yeah. and then all of a sudden we're like, oh, we're buying food now. Which is which is a new strange concept when you you know when you think in historical terms. For sure it is. Um, I would like that experience. I want that experience. I, even fishing, which is not even close. It's not nowhere near as manly as bow hunting. No, it really isn't. But it's still fun. Like there's something about fishing that makes it very special. And it's not just sitting quiet by the water with your buddy it's more i don't know there's some there's there's a connection between you and it's direct there's no intermediary you know there's no one in between me and the food i have to fish if i want to eat yeah or i can just go in the car and buy you know grab a bag of cheetos <laughs> that works too but it was more fun if you actually catch something when i went to french polynesia with, with jamie the tahiti and uh, i think it was in morea they had us in a place and they go, oh, you guys want to go fishing? I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's go fishing. And they just brought us out, you know, like 10 minutes away from the shore. And then they gave us, it was like a little wooden block with nylon and a hook. I'm like, okay, it's not a fishing rod. And he's like, all right, just, they, they have hermit crabs. You just put the hermit crab in as yeah. the bait, throw it out. We caught like 10, well, no, no, nine fish like in 30 minutes. Wow. And there was, it was all like red snappers. You yeah. Know, Pull them up. It was like very low resistance. I'm like, this is not that fun. It's not that. It's too easy. It's not. I'm fun. like, Jamie's yeah. like, oh, I love it. Like, this is easy. I'm like, yeah, this is normally not how it it's, is. It's not how it, you have to like, sit there a whole day. <laughs> yeah, maybe catch three, something. Three, four hours, and you get one catch. You yeah. know, if you're lucky. I'm like, yeah. this was just like throwing them in and pulling up the yeah. line. Like literally, there was twice where I threw it in and I had to pull it up right away because there's yeah. so many fish and it was such a like, you know, there's nobody there. You know, so these fish are not ready for this game. 
I'm like, yeah, it takes away a lot of the fun out of it, you know? Even though it was good for eating, we have, we you have don't have to wait. I, I will say this: like it's it's it, the opposite is even worse. <laughs> you know, like the opposite, is like sitting there for eight hours and not catching anything. Yeah. I've done that too. So, um, but for the most part, like I, yeah, I'm with. It's it's like it's both. Like you you want to grind. It's like you know, not similar analogy. I don't play video games, but I used to when I was a kid. The game is too easy. It's not fun. Yeah. But it's not fun if it's too hard either. Like there are some of those games, Prince of Persia. Prince of Persia. You ever play that game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. impossible. And then a Nintendo, you couldn't <laughs> beat that game, man. I was like, I'm not done with this thing. I'd play it for like 15 minutes. Like I'm out. Because like it was of, so hard. It was like one of the first games I remember playing. My grandfather, he had a bunch of computer games, and yeah. when we were in Venezuela, and when you're in Venezuela in the golden ages, you didn't go outside. It's too dangerous. So we had a lot of hide and go seek. And, and a lot of video games and Nintendo because you go outside, you're getting shot and mugged or whatnot. So I think Prince of Persia was one of like the first computer games I remember playing. Yeah. And, and people playing now, they're like, oh, the 3D thing. Like, no, nope, no, no, nope. no, no, no. The you're Nintendo version. Yeah, no, my, mine was even older. It was like, a, I think it was a 286 computer, but, you know, two dimensional, little block character, and you had like 60 minutes. To finish the it's game. gotta be one of the oldest games ever. Like that goes. That's like Pac-Man old, man, isn't it? Like it's it goes way back. Yeah, I mean, not Pac-Man old, but Pong. Obviously, I think it's the first one that ever came out. It's like seventies though. Yeah, All right. But this was, uh, I think, late eighties. So it's like just just before Super Mario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I remember playing that. But yeah, and that was a fun game. Although it is very frustrating because. You can die a lot, and then you yeah, oh, you're, yeah. you're also time limited. That's something yeah. I think people who play video games now don't understand, like because you have like saves and you can always restore where you were. Oh, you're you know? everyone's a winner. Yeah, it's <laughs> everyone's a winner. Yeah. In, yeah, in the modern era, that's what yeah. I've noticed because I watched like the nephews play and you know a few games I've played. You can always come back to where you were, and it goes back into what you're saying with struggle where. Those earlier games were a little bit more rewarding in the sense that they were yeah. they were very challenging. But if you got to finish, you're like, oh. yeah, it was, it, yeah. and you couldn't. I don't know, like, like I, I beat Super Mario in the original Nintendo, yeah. but it took me years to do it. It was yeah. years, man, so I could beat that game because you have three lives. Yeah, yeah. And the game goes on for like I don't know eight hours. You got to play that thing, whatever it is, and then you can only die three times. Or you can, oh, twice, right? Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. And then <clears throat> I think you could gain a, gain a life here and there. You get a one up or whatever, yeah, yeah. but like. But there was like almost like a, a level. There's a, a focus, you know. And I think games are too maybe too rewarding. It's, maybe that's why they're so addicting too, is because it's nonstop reward. Yeah, if it's nonstop. You're a winner. You know, everyone's a winner, and you don't have to be that good to be a winner in the game anymore. I remember the, one of the the last games I played that was really I thought was really interesting was a, it was called like Aliens versus Predator, and they had like a super hard mode. Which is you can't you only die and if you die once you lose. Yeah. And the levels were like longer, they're like twenty, thirty minutes. But it was like a horror game. So I think I remember that, yeah. So having to play through the whole round and you might only see a like an alien once, but you just don't know when in that twenty minutes yeah. it's gonna happen. So it was very suspenseful. So I thought, man, this was genius because the game was very simple. But because you had that one life, yeah. You were very like nervous the whole time, and you and you did everything much more secure versus 
when you're playing a game, like I remember like Doom you know had like God mode, right? Yeah. And you, you can't die. You just go reckless. Like, ah, you know, and there's zero like brain shot. thought into it. Yeah. yeah. There's no strategy. Yeah. But the level of stress you perceive is very different. So it's funny. We're talking about game, but it's the same thing with like when you're doing, you know, martial arts or whatnot. When you're fighting somebody who you know you're much better than, you start playing around and goofing off and you don't take it as seriously because you know like, oh, I can handle this guy. He's a white belt. I'm a black yeah. belt. But if you put yourself against someone who, like if I'm going against you, like, okay, A game on, you know, I got to be super cautious. I can't like leave anything there. The level of stress rises up a lot more. And get in that, but there's greater challenge. If I'm able to hit a technique off, it's like, damn, you know, yeah. I, I got something good. So it, going back to the beginning, by raising the bar of the whole sport, by like selling your instructionals or giving out the, the secrets, you're giving yourself the chance to be rewarded again for yeah. like having because I'm gonna make your leg lock game better if I start giving you all the leg lock secrets, and that's gonna force me either a to get a, an even better leg lock game to counter what you've come up with, or I have to develop other parts of my game and so not get there. And develop get getting really good and not getting stuck there. Yeah, you know I think someone like for example. Uh, Gordon Ryan has shown a lot of versatility in like his game, right? Like yeah. everybody, he first oh he's all leg locks, and then he started no, unlocking well people, and like oh, and then he started taking the back, and now he's like, now that he's gotten pretty big, he seems just to be arm triangling the hell out of everybody. Yeah. You know, so like, he he just had a win over uh, Mateus uh, Denise. Yeah, very dominant win. So, and he's another guy who's doing lots of instructionals and. He's, I think he's made more money now doing the instructionals than with, Fighting. The, with the competing. And the oh, I'm, for sure. I'd say yeah. that's, the, that's where the, the, the money is. But like it's, uh, um, it's, it's a successful model. Right? You prove yourself in competition and then you want to show the world what is it that you're doing. I think that's unique to our sport as well. I can't think of, uh, maybe I'm not the market so I don't see it, but I don't see like football players showing, oh, the you know, this is how yeah. as a quarterback I get the best spiral, or you know, I, I don't see that. You MMA, know? you don't see it. Yeah. I mean, I've taught MMA seminars and they're they're flops. Like, I, I if I release an MMA instruction, which I thought about doing many times, I change my mind halfway through, even like writing down a, a, a script, because I know it's not going to sell. MMA fans don't buy it. Like, it's a fan based sport, right? F football, MMA, jujitsu is not only practitioner, but there's something about. Once again, the, 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 the open software mentality, it is always being tweaked. And no matter how much time we both spend doing Kimuras, we're going to end up with similar conclusions, but not always identical. Right. See what I'm saying? So there's always, there's always room for like, oh, this is Dave's version, this is like so-and-so's version and, what, and whatnot. And I think that makes it even more appealing because it makes it more complex. Because the, the, the question every white belt always asks is, what's the best one? That's the white belt. It's a linear, simplistic mentality, right? Like yeah. it's a hierarchy: best, second best, third best. So this is how I should practice: the best, and then the second best, and that's it, right? Why would you need a fourth one? You got three best ones, and we know that fighting has nothing to do with any of that. Like, and I think that's one reason why it's so appealing because there's no end to it. There's no. It's not one of those things where you can go, okay, I know what the best moves are now. Well, that kind of kills the sport, doesn't it? Yeah. If we know what the best sweep is. You know, it kind of, well, we're done then. Like, there's a best sweep for every moment. And that's what makes it so complicated. White belts hate that answer because that's the answer I always give them because it's a vague answer, right? They hate it. People have been training for a year or two. They begin to understand, like, okay, I know what you're talking about now. And that's what makes it appealing. Yeah, it's not as simple. 
as if it were to be boring. Like, think about it. Imagine if you if you had the best take on the but like everyone would be doing the same thing. And it's so predictable. And I mean, where's the where's the growth? Where's the development? Like the art, like it, you're you have literally reached a limit to the coding of the art. Like imagine if you were I'm trying to think of an analogy here. Like you run out of moves in chess. Like you know, it, the fact that it's infinite makes it more appealing. And you know, and if you look at like someone like Matils and Gordon, they're completely different. They're both both highly successful, but they're completely different in terms of style. And everyone, like look at every ADCC champion or every IBJJF champion. Yeah, they're not. I mean, you get guys that are somewhat similar, like a really good open guard, Cobrini and Rafael Mendes, for example. Both of them known for their open guards. They're very different. They're both open guard players, but they're not. They don't play the same way. I think that right there is what just broadens the the the, the canon, you know, like infinitely. And this is why I think jujitsu is one of those sports where it's never going to stop evolving. And then you add the lapels now, man. That's like a whole new pickle. I can barely keep up. I'm like, slow the hell down, bro. What are you doing? It's like a whole new layer to just been added to jiu-jitsu that wasn't there. I mean, it was, but not sophisticated. It was very simple, very crude. I saw, uh, <laughs> I'm just laughing because Humova Hall put a video of him doing a knee cut pass. Yeah. I don't know if you saw it. Absolutely brutal. And I wrote him after, this is why I don't do the key. Because <laughs> yeah. he had the hold of the, it was just like the seat of the pants yeah. as he was passing. So it ended up giving this guy like the worst wedgie of life. Yeah. And this is like a black belt competition. And he's sliding, but as he's sliding, he's pulling up. <laughs> he's got, like a, he's got a rash on his butt afterwards. He was framing. Yeah. He gave up the frame and he was trying to grab his shorts, the uh, pants, and pull them down. Because the, he, the wedgie was he, hurting he, so much. It was like an atomic wedgie. <laughs> a level beyond, I think, anybody could probably make it. Yeah. You imagine Homola pulling it. Yeah. He must be yeah. strong as hell. Yeah. And the guy went tapped like a moment later. You know, I think uh, Homola got him with a choke or whatnot. But yeah. you see it. This guy's hand went down to his pants. I'm like, yeah, hard pass on that thing, man. It's funny. <laughs> no, but yeah, it's, uh, but like, yeah, it's just, just all these layers to it, man. And I, I think it's, it's never going to stop. I, I, I think that there's always, there's something about being newly familiar, you know, just recently introduced to jujitsu and really hyped up and like watched on DVD sets. Let's say, an, let's say your average 22 year old purple belt with a shoy rogi, right? And he feels like, I got this. I am at the pinnacle of jiu-jitsu technique. And he believes that, because I did too at some point, you know? Yeah. And then there's always someone that comes along and does something you never even thought about. Like, completely different. Like, holy cow, like, that's incredible. Right? Like, wow. Like, how can I not have thought about that 20 years ago? Whatever. I don't think that ever ends. I don't think that ever, I don't think there's going to be a time where there's not going to be something new. This is why, like, I don't know who I was talking about this the other day. I was talking about, like, oh, you know, innovation, innovation. I'm like, the only thing that is unusual about innovation is that you guys think there's something unusual going on. That's what's unusual. It's always been the case. The innovation you're watching now, it's not like it wasn't around 10 years ago. It just happened slower. Right. The internet just accelerated it. And competition as well. So you have competition, more competitors, more competitions. And you have the internet and just like augments that. Yeah, no wonder we're watching. It's like a new move every day. Yeah, I wonder at what point do we see a slowdown? Because I do think there's going to come to a, a plateau. Point, yeah. There's going to come to a point where we've essentially explored all the possible ways of twisting a limb, right? Yeah. Right now, there's still a lot of versatility just because we have so many levers to pull out. And 
on both ends. So you're seeing people doing, you know, kimura, and then you do omoplata, and then there's people doing barata platas, yeah. and then the tariko plata. Like, there's all these different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't keep up with the names, by the way. Yeah, yeah like I, I just recently learned the difference between uh, barata plata and tariko plata because I would see them both and they look somewhat similar, but there is a very subtle difference between. Uh, there's a significant difference between the two, but uh, I mean, at a certain point, though, we're gonna run out of things because I've, it's not exactly like a. We're comparing computer technology innovation, which yeah. we could see as endless because we're updating the hardware, right? So the hardware is changing. It's true. So it gives us more room to expand. Yeah. We're sticking with the same hardware. Yeah, body's the same. So we're changing software, but at a certain point, there's a hardware limitation, right? Like, it's true. It's very you know, true. I can't bend the arm anymore, you know, no. or you can't, you know, rotate the shoulder anymore. So we're stuck with what we have. I know that the, the way to modify hardware and like, it sounds like science fiction, but it is part of the discussion at this point is genetically modified humans. Yeah. You know, you ever watch... It's happening to an extent. It's happening. You ever watch Ga Gattaca? You ever watch Gattaca? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, that's Wonderful one of the best movie. movies of yeah. all time. Like, I, I saw my favorite. Because, like, it's... it's We're not too far away from that. Yeah. We are moving towards genetically engineered humans. Sure. And then when you get that, I want my baby to have, like, the strongest grip. I want them to have gorilla grips. Can they have gorilla grips in a little new newborn? You have, like, a five-year-old child with gorilla grip. You know? And you, that's you want, not impossible. You're looking for a double tendons. Yeah, double tendons. Like, give me, like, Vinny Magalhães, like, ankles and knees. Like, <laughs> fine, you know. I, I never worried about a footlock again. I, I forget crazy, there was a know? famous wrestler that was known that had double tendons on his wrists. Yeah. And they would say that when he grabbed your wrist, it felt like your wrist was going to break. I believe that. And he was just literally, and he just yeah. had a, you know, it makes a big difference. But, yeah, those, I mean, that's coming into play, you know, and the people who are becoming pharmacists and getting all sorts of, a hundred percent supplements and whatnot. Like, but but I think I genetics mean, is the big, the big, more than steroids. Right. I think steroids have a ceiling to what they can do. For sure. Because having taken steroids, I know for a fact that you know it's there's not like it's not exponential. There's it does that and then it doesn't it doesn't do more. It does improvement and then it plateaus. It can only do so much. Right. right. But when you're modifying genetics, you can actually make us as strong as a gorilla. You could do that. You can make every single muscle in your body not human, like in theory, right? And I don't think we're 20 years away from that. The way technology is expanding, I, I think we're going to see it in our lifetime and it's going to raise all these ethical issues about sports because now if you're poor, you're screwed. It's not going to be the weight and the, the, the drug testing and the weight that's going to make things fair. It's going to be, are you poor or are you rich? Because right. if you're rich, you can go to a geneticist and modify your children, Yeah. right? And then if you're poor, you're screwed with a nat. It's Gattaca, right? You, you yeah. have a natural birth born child. You're gonna clean toilets for the rest of your life. Whereas you know if you're genetically engineered, and you're gonna win the Olympics. You're gonna be an astronaut and so on. We're, it's gonna happen. Like it's it's kind of a scary world when you, when you think about it. Because like technology has that. It's a double edged sword, right? It can make the world incredible and it makes it incredibly shitty at the same time. I just got wa done watching that documentary, Social Dilemma. Have you watched it? Yeah, no, I no, made no. my kids watch it. You'd be surprised. My kids are like, "Daddy, yeah, you're right." Like, bless I. Like, even my kids, they're seven and nine. They're like, "Yeah, that's crazy," you know, because they can they can see that we're all way too into this internet, They're way more than we should. You know, yeah. we're not really equipped to deal with it. But so, like, you know, going back to technology, it has that double edge aspect to it. You know, it can be incredibly helpful, exponentially incredibly helpful, and exponentially incredibly. Uh, demeaning and, and, and you know, in detriment of, of humanity. Really. Well, it's a tool that becomes a crutch at a certain point, yeah. right? 
And I, I think that's uh, the problem. And it's interesting we're bringing genetics into it because that's a different path, right? Like essentially, like, are we going to go more technological, become like cyborgs? I think so. Or yeah. do we become more genetically enhanced and become like superhumans? You know, so yeah. these are two different. I, I, I would prefer the superhuman route because it sounds cooler. And there's yeah. also, <laughs> at least you're still human, you know? At a certain point, if you get cyborg, you become more robot than human. And then at a certain point, now you're just a machine. But right? it's kind of happy. People get in hip replacements, knee replacements. Yeah. Well, that cell phone is already part of your body because it's on you 24-7. It's just not inside your body. Like, I, I, yeah, I remember reading an article where it's actually going to be inside your brain. They can actually put a little chip inside your mouth. And that's... You can call and text people uh, you're, you're, without touching, without even having a phone. Or your, your favorite guy, Elon Musk, he's on that with Neuralink. They have a, they're already testing it on people where they put a chip that I guess has electrodes that connect to your brain. They're using it initially, I think, for elderly people who to try to speed up connections and whatnot. I, I, I don't really know. It's, it's, it's but, they, but they already have that there, you know. But the theory is that. Uh, Eventually, they'll be able to implant knowledge and other stuff. And, and, yeah. and I wonder, my, this is my issue with it, is because the kind of knowledge that will be implanted in your brain, much like social media, is selected. Yeah. So you're going to miss out. This is what people won't get because like, you know, people have argued with me, like, oh, I don't need to read books, Rob. Like, I got Google. I can Google and get the answers. That's not the point of reading. It's not the point of studying. It's learning how to think. Yeah. It's learning how to interpret data. You have information, information, and you're able to what? Intelligently decide where the truth is, right? Like you can actually judge and critique the data. If you're being, if you're having information coming from Google and it's being uploaded to your brain through Google, where's the not? I mean, are you really wise? You, yeah. It's not your information. You're just repeating what someone gave you. And it becomes an incredibly powerful tool of control. And that's basically what social dilemma is about. And if it's going to get worse, and they're talking about that because... It, it builds on itself as a snowball effect. We become ever more reliant on Wikipedia, ever more reliant on Google. Like there's certain things you Google that you can't find the answer for. You're going to have to dig five, six pages. Start digging some controversial topics, things that are not part of the American political spectrum, for example. You have to go to page, page seven, eight, nine to find it because they're not politically correct or they're outside of the spectrum. They're outside of the debate. So they're, Google, like they, they can control, limit the what kind of information you have, which is, it's, it's, it borders on dictatorial powers, but we are volunteering for it. That's what's so strange is that we're volunteering to be, to have our, you know, opinions shaped by, you know, half a dozen people in Silicon Valley. Well, it's funny because I was looking up, you know, we have elections coming up. I got one of these uh, ballots, example ballots I wanted yeah. to look at. And you see the list and of course, presidential candidates, vice presidential candidates, we're very familiar with them. But then you have like 20 or so judges. And I'm looking, I don't know any of these people. <laughs> you know, like, how am I supposed to make an informed decision? And then when you like Google, like, oh, you know, uh, like a Nevada voter guy or something like that, it just tells you, oh, like, conservative guy, pick these people, you know, you know liberal or, you know, Democrat side, pick these yeah. people. I'm like, that doesn't really help me. Like, I want to know why I should pick somebody. You know 100%. I mean? like, it tells you the party. Because you're, you're voting for the team. You're not voting for his ideas. Right, which is horrible. Which is horrible. Yeah. You know, I agree. You know, at, at least, like, the questions, I can find, like, people's viewpoints. And I can make, like, uh, an informed decision. But it goes more to the point where there you have to take a big leap of faith and believe that the people who are telling you this is real is real. And as we've seen in recent times, that's shown to be very skewed based on 
people's biases. A hundred percent. And yeah. like their personal motivations. So it's like, man, harder to research something and find it true, you know, and especially online where it's so easy to fabricate stuff now. Yeah. Oh, fake news is, is a thing. Like that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a tool of war at this point. Yeah. Um, no, man, and, and, and with the judges thing, like I have, I found this out recently. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but like these judges, you know, was financing their campaigns, right? Do you know that? Like, you know who pays for their campaigns? Who? The attorneys. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's not. It's like Washington. This is why Washington is so corrupt. Because yeah. who's banking the campaigns of all these congressmen and the president and everyone else? The private sector oh, wait, lobbyists. Wait. We were looking for that judge that got you over. She's gone. So. Oh yeah, I found out. <laughs> Au revoir. So yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was asking uh, uh, my girlfriend's attorney friend, like, yeah. oh, you know, she was trying to look up the case to see who the judge was. Like, oh no, she didn't make the primary. Yeah. Well, yeah. Considered to be the worst judge in the history of Nevada. She has the worst ratings in the history of Nevada. Yeah. So yeah. Unfortunately, you had to suffer that one. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, it's you know, it's life. Yeah. But, but uh, I, I, uh, like I always say, time is the only judge that matters. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Dave, uh, dude, I think it's time. I think we yeah yeah hit our, our mark. This was fun. We started with heel hooks. We ended up talking shit about Google and you know <laughs> my former judge. <laughs> um, what else, man? Um, yeah, man, good times, man, good times. Let's do this more often. Let's get a guest here soon. Um, yeah, guys, just to give myself a plug, my book is out. Did you get to read it? I mean, you haven't started, have you? I read the first like ten. 15 pages. So you know what I'm I do? People, like, when people are like, I've been put into the toilet, read a page. Every time you go to the bathroom, read a page. That's what I normally do. Like, I, I know you're a reader. I know you're busy too. But yeah, like it's it's on, on my website, closeguardfilm.com. From what I've seen, it's been getting really good reviews. You've, you have a lot of the jiu-jitsu elites reading it. So guys, you'll be I missing see. out. I know yeah. the, the little that I've read so far is already intriguing to me. And I know a lot of the tidbits that you've shared with me over the time so it, yeah it's a uh, um i think it gets better towards the second half where i start drawing with the conclusions i think the japan section of the trip to me at least is far more interesting than the brazil chapter maybe because i'm so familiar with brazilian culture it's like yeah, you, it's like going home in some ways it's not but japan was a bit of a cultural shock and i had been to japan before but this time i went there with different eyes and it was an eye-opening experience personally not just uh, as a, a practitioner filmmaker writer whatever like as a person as an individual it was somewhat of an eye-opening experience so anyway i hope you guys enjoy um and uh yeah let me know when you're done we'll maybe we'll talk yeah, about yeah we'll do an uh, episode going over it for sure and uh yeah guys well, that's it oh if you're ever in vegas come visit me and david um yeah and uh yeah we'll see you guys next time take care thank you for tuning in i hope you guys enjoyed today's episode as always be sure to like, comment, subscribe, share, and all that social media goodness and help us uh, spread our reach. And as always, if you have any comments or feedback, you can reach us at breakingtheguard.com. That's our social media handles and our website, of course, breakingtheguard.com. And you can find contacts there. A final word from one of our sponsors, which is bjjretreat.com. That is, of course, my campsite. And uh, we just completed a camp here in Las Vegas, which we talked about in the beginning of the episode. That was a lot of fun. If you would like to be a part of that, it's essentially a one week of training with me here in my home. And uh, we have essentially a guest wing where we have three bedrooms set up where we can lodge eight people in there. It's a shared living situation. So we have a couple bunk beds. We have one queen suite. Uh, and of course, we have mats set up. It's about 500 square feet of mats, which is plenty. 
because the camp size is smaller. I'm looking between 8 to 14 people max in the camp. And uh, we focus on a variety of topics. Like this time around, we're going to be working on the underhook series, guillotine chokes. But I always sprinkle in some Kimura Trap goodness <laughs> because it's a must. And uh, we're training for three hours a day, uh, pretty much on the mats, usually around 12.30 to 3.30 p.m., although we flex it a little bit depending on people's schedules. Uh, you, of course, can stay with me, which includes breakfast, and uh, I throw in some meals as well, and you can have snacks and drinks. Uh, and I have a whole host of recovery tools from massage chairs to Normatech compression sleeves, uh, jigsaw massagers. And I have a full gym in my house, along with the mats. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff you can do here. And of course, I'm very close to the strip. I'm about 10 minutes away from all the casinos, just one road down the, the street. So it makes it very convenient if you want to go and enjoy the nightlife and gamble away everything you earn. <laughs> and you don't have to stay with me, of course. If you'd rather stay in one of the strip hotels and just come by the train, you can do that as well. So... You can learn all about that at bjjretreat.com, where we're currently offering 20% off for what we call early bird registration. The next camp is going to be from December 1st through 7th. And uh, you can get started just by putting a 50% deposit, which will hold your spot. So go ahead, visit bjjretreat.com to learn more and register today.